On today's episode, of course, Under the Hood covers Doug DeMuro's lies, car financial crisis, autonomous repo, and we finally get into my snowy Beamer Challenge debut. We'll wrap up the episode with Bending the Rules. It's back already, this time with a very current event. Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's get right under the hood. Starting with that Doug DeMuro guy. He's uh he's a little full of crap. So uh recently Doug DeMuro explains why the idea of keeping and maintaining a car forever doesn't really make sense, financially or emotionally. Now, here are his points, right? He bought an E63 AMG wagon, first mistake, that he wanted to make perfect, but realized after spending $16,000 that he will never be able to make it perfect. And those $16,000 break down into $4,000 he spent on a differential, and then the other 12000 on a variety of plastic pieces, sensors, window motors, and brakes, at least according to uh, the article. And he also goes on to say that there's probably no such thing as a car that you will keep forever. Car enthusiasts don't own their cars forever because of depreciation and cost to maintain. A logical take, you know, but that's one of his points. Um, he also goes on to say your next dream car is four years of depreciation away. And that is to say that, um, you know, a new car comes out, now it appeals to you, uh, it gets sold new, four years down the line it's depreciated enough for you to buy it. Um, So there's always a car around the corner. And his worst car decision, wrapping up his points, dumping money into a car and trying to make it perfect because I believed I would own it forever. Like, that's his worst car decision. I, I, I understand the points. Um, I understand the points that he's trying to make, uh, but there are some flaws. So let's go into some rebuttals, right? First of all, perfect is subjective. What is he talking about? Is it showroom? Is it functional? Is it 10-foot view? Um, I mean, there's a whole different spectrum of what perfect is. I mean, think I think for me, perfect means drivable and enjoyable. I don't necessarily need... I've never been into, like, the garage queens. I don't need... Fully restored doesn't mean, like, coming off the lot to me, really. Um, it just more so means the parts are there, the paint looks okay. The 10-foot view is there, right? I mean, if you're driving a car, I don't think you'll ever really be able to keep it in like perfect condition. If you're driving it, if you're using it, it's 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 a machine. It's going to get gummed up. It's going to people are going to hit it, right? Unless you're parking away from everybody all the time, which is impossible to do at least, you know, where I'm from. So perfect is very subject, subject subjective. He doesn't really go into explaining what perfect means to him. It does seem like he's trying to get all the pieces and and sort of restore it to new. Um but I mean it's I think it's still possible, but there's another glaring problem that I think is pretty obvious from the writing. Doug doesn't get his hands dirty. $4,000 for a diff? Get out of here. I I don't think so. And I think that's just one of the... I don't know that it's necessary, but I would say it is very helpful. At the very least, it is very helpful to be able to work on your own car if you're trying to take on an endeavor like restoring a car or getting it back to factory condition or turning it into perfect, whatever perfect might be for you. Um, if you don't get your hands dirty, I mean, you're talking about, you know, quadruple, triple, four times the cost in a lot of cases um, to get the work done to your car that's needed. I mean, any even as simple Things as simple as replace, replacing a window motor, which he mentioned, or sensors, for example, or brakes. Um, all this stuff can be significantly cheaper if you're working it, working on it on your own. And most of the time, now I'm making a generalization here, and I will admit that, but I would say most of the time, 
uh, people who are looking for dream cars, um, I guess how I think of dream cars, are willing to kind of take that extra mile, extra level of effort to get things done on your own at home in your garage. Most of the time you can do everything pretty easily with just a, a little toolkit and some willingness and motivation. So clearly Doug doesn't. Um, and that contributes to him, you know, not keeping a car because obviously he sold the uh, AMG wagon because it was costing too much to maintain. And 16000 I mean, it would probably all happen really quickly. Um, I would say, you know, once he's done with it, most of this stuff he's not going to have to buy again. So his expenses wouldn't reach anywhere close to that in the subsequent years. I think someone else, whoever he sold the wagon to, ended up benefiting from um, you know, the work that he did instead of keeping it for a long time and sort of getting his money's worth out of it. Now, following that, most enthusiast, most of the time, enthusiasts are buying fully depreciated cars and in some cases, appreciating cars. Yeah, they, there's a ca- occasional dream car, um, you know, that it, that is a new car. Maybe the new Supra came out, became a lot of people's dream cars. Uh, a lot of the supercars that come out, I guess, are people's dream cars. But I think most of the time, <clears throat> the it's implied that when you mention dream car, it's it's been out for some time. Um, or when it become when it's a dream, it's unobtainable. And when it becomes obtainable, uh, it's much you know. I would say maybe at least at the very least six years down the line. Um, and so when he mentions that you know the depreciation uh, is what keeps. A uh, car enthusiast from owning cars forever, I don't see it. Um, I don't. I definitely don't see it. I, I think most of the time, you know, we're buying old '90s cars. At least currently, buying old '90s cars, um, and those are appreciating at this point. We're going to get to a point where the 2000s are going to start appreciating as uh, the demand increases and the supply dwindles. So I, I don't know. It just it doesn't it doesn't hold. I I just don't know. It almost feels like he was really hurt by this wagon and so because he was hurt by this wagon all of a sudden he's saying that the idea of keeping and maintaining a car forever doesn't make sense uh the last point i'll say um really his worst car decision if you look at it at its core is sort of the definition of being an enthusiast right dumping money into a car and trying to make it perfect because you believe you're going to own it forever um, I, th- I think if you're, if you don't believe you're going to enjoy the car forever or at the very least to its max, which I would say is a significant amount of time, you're really not going to invest in it. So by default, if you're going to invest in a car and kind of turn it into your own, right. And personalize the car, however you want it, um, you're going to spend a lot of money in it because you intend to be in it for maybe not forever but a good amount of time and i think that that's that's sort of the last point right forever i guess it's really forever in this sense i feel like it's an exaggeration it's just hyperbole right it's for it's for effect because you're not keeping anything forever so i would i'm definitely look at viewing this as for a long time um i tend to keep my cars for a long time I have mentioned I'm keeping the E92 forever, and then occasionally it'll come up that I want another car, and maybe I'll need to sell this car. Um, So I can see sort of the desire to jump into other cars, uh, sort of driving out whatever your dream car is. And it is true that your next dream car is around the corner in the sense that once you get that dream car that you've been looking for, Another one takes that slot of dream car pretty soon after. So, yeah, maybe you will trade your current car in for that one. Um, But, uh, I mean, the idea that it doesn't make sense financially, I'd agree with. The idea that it doesn't make sense emotionally, I don't know. I feel like we do get attached to what we like. Uh, You know, shout out to the Honda guys, still keeping... Pretty much every generation of Civic alive at this point. Um, you know, it's 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 the reason why even in 2023, we are still seeing, you know, Celicas from the 70s 
around, uh, being kept around and driving, and even in some cases being drifted. Shout out to Kelvin. Um, it, it's because the spirit of the car enthusiast sort of by default demands that you're going to keep this car forever um, and you approach putting it back together that way or putting it in the best condition that way. Um, so I was surprised for a car guy like Doug DeMuro to express this type of opinion. I th again, I think it goes back to him being bitten by the wagon uh, and he didn't have a fun time. But, Doug, you know, just get your hands dirty and it'll be a lot easier to keep these cars. Let's go into our next headline. The next financial crisis might have already started in the car world. Car debt is piling up as more Americans owe thousands more than the vehicles are worth. One data engineer from Atlanta, uh, after factoring a service contract, fees, other costs, had a loan that went from that went through sixty-six thousand dollars on a forty-nine thousand dollar Ford Explorer. Um, the the volume of loans that are upside down at this point is really really high, and it's not unusual for drivers to carry that negative equity. Um, and dealers are saying that more and more people are showing up at their lots to give trade-ins for cars in which they're $10,000 underwater. Like there's no value in that car. It actually has a negative value and they're trying to turn it in. Um, a significant portion of these buyers have $1,000 notes, monthly payments on these cars. And the cars, the cost of new cars went up 20% since the pandemic. So that's not helping either. Um, people are going to stop paying these soon. I think if, you get in a, if you're in a cycle of trading up your car every two or three years, even being underwater on a car, I mean, that's not financially sound. And this is not financial advice in any way. This is an automotive podcast. But it is concerning that there might be it is possible that there's a crash in the car world due to this behavior. I don't even know why you would take a trade-in that is, well, I know why, right? You want to, a dealership want to sell the car. But, I mean, that practice shouldn't even exist that you're trading in a car that you owe more money to than it's worth. That doesn't make any sense. And as a result, people are going to start paying them. The repo men are going to come out in droves and start collecting these cars because, I mean, there's no way you can eventually keep up with these loans. If you if you keep trading in higher and higher for cars and, um, and they're continually going underwater, eventually something's going to break. Um, and Yahoo, which is where I found this uh, headline, is saying that most consumers have no choice but to get into these deals, which makes absolutely no sense. Of course you have a choice. How about option one? Don't trade up every three years and don't roll your car loan into another car trap, right? Easy peasy, right? Keep your car. That's option one. That's the easiest thing you do to do. Keep your car. Don't trade it in. Pay it off. Use it to make yourself some money, right? Taking, taking you to work is making you money. Now it's an asset for you now bringing money in as opposed to keeping lose money because you want to keep up with the joneses or whatever it may be option two get a little something get something a little older you know and find a shop that you can trust in the end it's very very likely that you're going to come out with a cooler car and still pay less when factoring the cost of taking your car to the shop um you know get a get a i mean with Car technology changed a lot, I think, since the 2000s. And I think probably, as I would say, around the 2005 and up timeline, you can get a car and it's very comfortable and it's relatively reliable and it's relatively modern and it has all the latest features. You might not have like Apple Play or Google or whatever, but you can live without that or you can install it aftermarket. Get like a 10-year-old car. Don't you know, get, jump into the brand new car right away, uh, figure something out there. And then option three, which is probably the biggest hurdle for mo most people get handy, not a handy, get handy. And you can daily anything you want. It doesn't matter how old it is, how much of a rust bucket it is. If you get, if you start fixing your car, two things happen. Actually, if you start learning how to work on cars, 
unfortunately, and this is the truth, you start learning how far you can let a car go before you need to start working on it. Meaning how long you can drive with the uh, fuel tank on empty or how long you can drive on that dirty oil. Now, I'm, I'm pretty OCD about oil changes, but every once in a while you go over you know, a few thousand miles or whatever and you know that that's not really going to hurt, especially if you keep up with your oil changes regularly. So that happens. That's something to watch out for as you learn more. But as you learn more, as you learn to be, to be able to do more things on your cars, you can really end up in any car that's supported, right? If, you have, if there are parts available for, for that car, then you can drive that car every day if you want. Now, there are exceptions to this rule, um, and it really comes down to how good you are as a mechanic in, in a lot of places, but it's not that difficult to learn. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're easy, easy options, right. That can help us get out of this, uh, financial crisis that we're already in. I think, um, I have to imagine that a lot of these loans, subprime loans, right. Like in the housing crisis are going to come and bite us. Um, you know, now we're doing 84 months, 84 month loans. I'm hearing soon. We're going to get to the hundreds. It is unfortunate that a lot of the, basically the average car price is hitting new highs like every month or every quarter, let's say, um, that's not helping. Uh, we're going to need to keep up, come up with cheaper alternatives. Maybe that $20,000 Mazda, uh, no Toyota Suzuki MR2 that we talked about on a last podcast comes back and that should help. $20,000 is okay. I would say that's where we need to have cars available at that price range. But something tells me that these trade-ups aren't really going towards cars in the $20,000 price range. Let's get into our next headline. Ford engineers are now going after repo men. We just mentioned them earlier. Ford has applied for a patent uh, that describes self-repossessing cars. They can drive themselves away. So you're not going to need a repo guy to show up to your house, load up your car, um, and take it away to the impound lot. Uh, the car could by itself either drive away by itself, right? It's, uh, it's recognized that you're not, uh, keeping up with your payments. So it turns itself on right and drives away autonomously Two, it can drive itself to a junkyard. This is fascinating. So this is described in the patent too. Um, if they're going to ping the car, right? And if the age of the car, certain parameters that they're reading, uh, that the insurance company is reading or whoever, whatever third party is reading, uh, determines that the car's value exceeds what it would cost to repossess it, they, it will just drive itself to the junkyard. Of course, they're not going to let you keep it, but they're going to drive it to the junkyard and I guess get money from the junkyard on that turn in. Uh, but that's crazy too, that they're just, they're working on these different routes depending on the value of the car. It makes sense. And, uh, the patent also includes disabling features in the car, like disabling the engine, disabling the AC, uh, disabling the, uh, you know, locking mechanisms in the car. And this comes into play because the repo function would be completely progressive. It's not like, you haven't made three payments and then all of a sudden the car starts running away. No, it's going to start with warnings and then it's going to start shutting off different functions within the car. Like I mentioned, the AC, uh, maybe the radio, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever services the car comes with, heated seats, your windshield wipers, I don't know, whatever's most annoying, right? Definitely probably keep safety things like your turn signals and such. Um, but anything that doesn't have to do with safety, they will start shutting off as, uh, these months progress and you're not, you're still not committing on your payments. They will lock the owner out of the car. The, the car locks itself and won't allow anyone to open it. Um, there's also a mention of playing annoying sounds. It doesn't go into, into a lot of detail what these annoying sounds would be, but, uh, that's, that's almost petty. <laughs> I don't know. I I do see <laughs> I do see people driving down the street like uh you know with these sounds playing in their cars. 
I definitely see that happening. Um, I mean, most of the time, if you're not making your payments, it's likely that you're struggling. I don't, I, I don't imagine a lot of people are just trying to take advantage of the system. But anyway, the final option is the car driving away. Now, as technology exists today, this should be fairly easy to defeat. No internet connection, no repo. Um, I guess there might be, I could see manufacturers maybe installing SIM cards into cars to sort of turn the car into a cell phone where they could uh, essentially ping the car um, at will and they don't necessarily have to have internet connectivity, maybe Wi-Fi connectivity, whatever it may be. Um, but you could still find a way to block that. So as long as you're blocking the connection to Ford in this case, I don't see them being successful here. So if you're just smart enough to, when you stop, this is not advice, by the way, when you stop making payments, that is when you need to figure out how to cut the connection between Ford and your car. Because as long as that's gone, they can't control anything in your car. That said, this is probably something they've already thought about. So unless there, there's probably got to be some very clever way to hack the system and not trigger some of these functions as a, as a result. Because what I'm expecting to happen is you're going to start cutting wires or you don't come online for a certain time or any of these rules can be, can be implemented to where as soon as you that time expires or maybe you cut the wire, it immediately goes, throws off all these functions, locks you out of the car, and drives away. Um, I think as long as you're in the car, I doubt it would drive away. That sounds like more of a security risk. But it'll probably you know lock itself once you're out of the car and then drive itself away. There's a lot of things you can do now with technology, which I imagine they would. Um, but wherever there is rules, there are rule breakers. Um, and much like every single PlayStation and Xbox has ever come out has been cracked. Um, it, it's very likely that we're going to find people to crack the code for these cars so that they're not doing that. Uh, now, the easiest option to get away here is just to pay the car or not get into loans that you cannot commit on. I know things happen, though. I mean, you lose your job, uh, you know, big life changes happen, unexpected changes happen. And in that case, you know, get creative, figure out how to keep that car for a little longer. Again, this is not advice. But let's get into our last headline of the week. If we want a positive car community, we can't be hypocrites. I mean, let's be real. And uh, I follow a YouTuber by the name of Rich Rebuilds. And very recently, he bought a 1,000-horsepower Corvette race car. He took it out in the snow and put it in the ditch. Now, it wasn't Richard from Rich Rebuilds that was driving it. It was Steven who was driving it uh, when the accelerator stuck and it went into the trees. Yes, it was an accident. The accelerator stuck. Um, it wasn't necessarily reckless driving. But I would argue that it is, right? I mean, you don't take a $1,000 horsepower car, which is, a cor uh, I would say, like a 70s-era Corvette, maybe even earlier than that, um, and take it on the street uh, where there are other people, pedestrians, other cars, and not at least, you know, kind of go through the car top to bottom to make sure that everything is okay at least you know not or go into an empty lot because what ended up happening is that he actually hit a car on the way off the road um and so although there weren't any casualties there were other victims to this accident uh the the when the accelerator stuck the car then went into the trees um, and Steven he came out of it fine, which is good. And he was taken by paramedics uh, to the hospital to get checked out. The paramedics actually in the video advise him to go to the hospital just to make sure that the cops don't bother him, um, which makes sense. But, you know, as representatives of the car community, we must do better. Right. We can't get caught doing these things. I mean, there's there definitely is a line between this and takeovers. Uh, but this is. It's just reckless. This is definitely reckless. 
Um, you know, with a car with that much power, when it's that old, you just bought it, you don't know what's going on. You want to make sure you're in a controlled area or an empty lot or something, right, to make sure that it's safe um, and you don't end up in trees after sideswiping a old Toyota Corolla. That's just not okay. Not okay in any way. Um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, we don't have fun. We go to the canyons. We go to empty lots. We do these things, you know, and it's um, gray area, right? Um, but the I guess the most important part is that we're doing it safely, um, that we're doing it responsibly. And in this case, I think when you're when you're that big of a channel, um, you need to pay a little more attention. Um, now, he did post it. So he's just kind of owning up to it. There wasn't like any apology or we shouldn't be doing this or any lesson learned as far as I can tell. Uh, but at least it was posted. So um, I guess take that as you will um, as them. I take it as maybe them owning up to it, but uh, it's it's not a good look. It's not a good look at all. I felt so bad for the lady. And when they actually show in the video, the lady kind of up in arms about her car getting wrecked i would be too but very little detail was provided outside of that i'm sure insurance handle it i don't know if there's insurance on the on the race car that might be an out-of-pocket expense i don't know how things work on the east coast where they're where they're at um but i'd be interested to find out you know how that was remediated because this sucks so yeah if you buy an old uh, thousand horsepower corvette you know, take it out to the empty lot and do a couple test pulls before you figure out, uh, before you take it out on the street where you can injure other people. We don't take we don't take kindly to the takeover kids, so we need to make sure we set right examples. And those are your headlines for the week. Now let's get into uh, something I've been waiting to talk about for a really long time: the whitest track day ever. Now, some people call it bravery. I might actually call it stupidity. But I had my first track day in the snow. And man, what an experience. What an experience. Like top to bottom, what an experience. Like just getting there. I, one, I never thought I'd be towing in the snow. I had to tow in the snow. So going through Cajon and the 138, it started raining very heavily. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, that rain sounds really loud. So it's actually turning into hail. Then all of a sudden, it looks like I'm doing warp speed in Star Trek. There are snowflakes going sideways. Now, I'm, I'm from SoCal. Uh, I'm, I'm born and raised in Southern California, born and raised in Los Angeles specifically. I have seen snow, active snow, twice in my life. Once, when I was 26, 26 or 27, when I went to Colorado for work, I thought paper was falling from the sky. Nope, turns out it was snowing. And now, this time. And this time, I'm in a truck with tires that are, you know, they're decent all-season tires. But, honestly... I don't know that I trust all season in snow. Most of it just comes from not knowing. I don't drive in snow. I mean, I've, n I've never been in active snow. And then I'm towing a car as well. I, I don't have any chains. I'm not prepared for this. But at this point, I'm like, I need to keep going. It's going to be the same thing if I turn around and go back home. I'm going to experience the same type of weather. I should just keep going. And for the most part, the road is still, I can still see the asphalt, right? So it's, it's snowing, but I can tell that I'm still going to have some uh, traction. That is until I go through feeling. The ground turned completely white. And this is where I am, I am starting to white knuckle and I am, regret is starting to set in. I'm getting this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, what the hell am I doing? This isn't something that I, this isn't what I signed up for. Is this really worth track days? Is this how the track's going to look? I mean, there are a million thoughts going through my head. And I go from, you know, 50 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour. I'm down to 20 miles an hour. The ground is thick with snow. 
There are cars now pulled off to the side. They've given up on going to where they're going. I'm very determined, but now I'm getting to a point where even feathering throttle is setting off my traction light. I, I would barely tap the throttle, and I could feel my rear end getting loose. And this is towing a car. And so I'm crawling the car at this point. I'm slowly giving, giving the accelerator some juice, then pulling back. Slowly giving it some juice. Luckily, for the most part through there, it was flat. I think if I would have encountered any significant climbs or declines, I might have stopped there because traction was at a premium. And this would end up being practice for the actual event. Now, it wasn't snow the rest of the way. I finally ended up breaking through and then ended up just being rain. And rain, I know, I understand. I've driven through rain before. I'm comfortable with rain. So rain is coming down at this point. Everything outside of the road is white, but at least the road has been cleared by the rain. It's just wet. I'm back to traveling at 50 miles an hour. I'm going to make it in a decent time. So I arrive at the event, and it's a ghost town like I've never seen before. I mean, track days... Every single track day I've gone to, even when I get there really early, which I do tend to get there pretty early, um, Big Willow, Willow Springs, is packed. The lot is full of trailers and cars. This time, honestly, it looked like there was no event. And it made sense uh, considering the, the conditions in Southern California at the time. And it wasn't snowing at this point, but it was raining very heavily. And the truck read 30 degrees. It was uh, it was cold. I could feel it inside the cabin with the heater on. I wasn't blasting it, but with the heater on, I could feel how cold it was outside. And that was going to suck. Really, the only preparation I did, I knew, I knew it was going to rain. There was nothing really in the forecast about snow. It just said that it was going to rain, and from the rain that was described, it didn't seem that heavy. So I was, okay, I will definitely use my RT660s. I usually run Maxxis RC1s, but I was doing the uh, Falcon RT660s this time because they have um, they are a street tire, and they have more grooves than the Maxxis RC1 do to displace water. So I'm like, okay, I'll go with those. I'm not actually taking wet tires. I don't have any. Um, but I thought I would take tires that were good enough and I got new wiper blades. I still have my windshield wipers. So I figured I'd get new wiper blades and I'd be good to go. So that's pretty much all the prep I did for the car at this point. Uh, the car is prepped for the class already based on the previous event that I wanted to go to and wasn't able to attend. So all that was all good and well. But unloading the car was miserable. My hands were frozen. For some reason, probably I've just accumulated them in the truck. Uh, shout out to Grease Monkey for giving me all these gloves. Um, I had four pairs of gloves uh, in my truck. I went through all four pairs because it was raining, so your hands would get wet. And then I'm working out the straps and unloading the car, and everything is freezing. I mean, it's like the stereotypical blowing into your hands constantly. Uh, just to stay a little, a little warm. Luckily, I met uh, John Wu, who actually got a garage since people had not shown up. He got a garage. There's very limited garages at Big Willow, and he got one um, and told me that I could kick it in there with him, which I absolutely took him up on because it was so cold. Finally, it's time for the driver's meeting, uh, which was probably the hardest time I had finding it. I mean, they told us where it would be, but since there was no one around, that almost felt like it wasn't happening. Um, when the meeting started, honestly, it felt like there were more Speed Venture shirts there than actual drivers. It looked like it was a one-to-one match almost in some cases. And I counted six brave individuals in our, uh, in our driver's meeting. And you're talking about a full competition with five different classes. Um, and I think it included other groups as well. But, yeah, it was uh, six people total that had shown up to that point. We were expecting more later. And at this point, it had turned from rain to snow, a little bit of snow. Um, 
so we were like, oh, there might be some people stranded. Hopefully they make it. You know, we're expecting more at this point. But they've at least missed the driver's meeting. So go get the car, get it ready. The car doesn't even want to start because it's so damn cold. It it's just it's it's like a diesel and finally turns on and i'm like okay cool you know i'm a little nervous it's the rain uh the snow has now turned back into rain um but i'm approaching session one and throughout this time up to 8 45 in the morning which was my first session It had sort of gone between rain, snow, dry, and just cycled through these different conditions. The track still, it looked wet, but it was still, you could still see the tarmac. You could still see the black. Um, But at the start of the session, it was just raining. Um, It was raining hard, uh, but it was just raining. And my tires definitely felt it. Um, I was... I was nervous, but I was excited for doing Big Willow in the wet. Um, You know, it's my home track. You know, how bad can it be, right? But it was bad. Just getting out of the the hot pits. I, I was, you know, I knew I was in the wet, so I'm not going full throttle. I'm measuring it. But even just measuring it, which I thought was sort of tempering the throttle, I was losing the rear end come going out on track. I'm like, oh, this is going to be rough. All I kept thinking about really was all the practice that my truck gave me on the way in, right? I had I was literally drifting that car through the snow to get it here. And now I'm feeling like I'm going to have to be sawing on the steering wheel the exact same way on track. Um, it, it was a... It let me know that I needed to be patient. And I talked to a lot of people. Shout out to Carlos, Jaime... Uh, you know, prior to going out and, you know, knowing that I was going out in the wet um, just to kind of get some pointers and stuff. And it was always the same. Be patient. Just be patient. Ease into the lap, you know, kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. Uh, but it turns out that being patient is a lot easier said than done. I don't know what it was, uh, but I was or maybe it was just the coldness and I couldn't think. One, my reaction time was down. I could tell significantly that my reaction time was down from the normal i mean i was i was essentially huddling huddling myself and i had a jacket on but i was huddling myself in the car because it was so cold luckily i had gloves um because that helped a lot with driving um you have to drive with the windows down which means the elements are going to get you i'm you know and i made oh my god i made the mistake of leaving my helmet upside down in the driver in the passenger seat uh, with the windows down for a little while, so when I go put on the, when I went to go put on the helmet, it was wet. I had to do all my sessions that day with a wet helmet. It, it wasn't gonna dry out. It was just way too cold. It wasn't gonna. I didn't have a blow dryer or anything, but yeah, I had to wear a wet wet helmet, and I would equate it to, you know, walking around with wet socks, which I was doing also. Because I wore some Adidas Ultra Boost, I didn't wear rain boots. It just I got lazy on that one because I didn't. I just didn't want to wear boots and then change into my driving shoes. Um, and that's really the sole reason where I just wore my Ultra Boot Ultra Boosts, and I was going to change into my driving shoes. It was just an easier go, but it ended up be a lot more challenging because now I'm walking through puddles in these in these cloth shoes, and my socks are wet. The inner lining of my helmet is wet. I mean, all of this is just, it's miserable. It's horrible. And I think all these things together, along with my excitement of it, my adrenaline is running just from the idea of going out there in the wet and, you know, going 120 miles in uh, uh, in wet conditions, miles an hour. It was hard for me to be patient. And even on the outlap, I actually spun out coming out of the... Uh, coming out of turn six, I spun out. It was a very, very slow spin um, because I wasn't going fast at all. I just had no grip. I think the rubber on the tires was just so hard from how cold it was. It was. It felt almost like I was driving the car on like wooden tires. Like that's how it felt. I felt like no traction whatsoever. 
Um, I mean, even turning at parking lot speeds on the track, it felt like I was going to lose traction. It was bad. It was bad. And then the snow starts coming down really, really hard. If I thought it looked like warp speed in the truck on the freeway when it was snowing, on the track, it was a whole different experience. But I turned I turned off the part of my brain that said this is dangerous. And that was made easy by the fact that I was so I was like a giddy little kid driving through the track, like, oh my God, I get to drive Big Willow in aggressive snow. Like when when would I one, if you would have told me that was gonna happen, I would have never believed you. And then two, when is it ever going to happen again? Well, I mean, considering climate change stuff, it might happen, you know, more and more often. Who knows? But, I mean, you don't know if, if it's going to happen again or not. So I'm, I'm driving through. Then after turn five, again on the Omega. I mean, those are probably the sharpest turns on the track. I end up losing control again. This time I go into the dirt. So I'm black flagged. I went. Uh, you know, they kind of review your car. They make sure, you you know, you haven't debeated a tire. You ain't got rocks in there. Um, and then you haven't messed up the car significantly. And then they'll let you back out. The only reason I went back out is because I wanted to shake it off. But, the, you know, the conditions were horrible. I mean, it was very, very much active snow. In, um, you know, 15 minutes, the track turned from rainy green to completely white. And I posted a lot to the to Instagram, you know, around what I was seeing because I, I was baffled. I was baffled by what I was looking at. So I went out um, that last lap. It wasn't even a lap. I mean, it was like literally a parade lap. It felt like I was going five miles an hour the entire time. Um, and I just wanted to shake off the, the spin out. Um, and I went back in because, I mean, there was there was no way I was going to do anything meaningful. And I mustered up a 223. Um, and to put it in perspective, my personal best at um, at Big Willow is a 135. So that's nearly a minute slower in the snow. It's significant. And, I mean, I would say for snow, I was pushing that 223. I was looking for a good time. I think I actually came in with the fastest, in the Beamer Challenge, the fastest no time. That might have been for the fact that some of the other Beamer Challenge folks were having some issues. So the track is actually shut down after this session. Like, that's how bad it was snowing. Um, And it just kept snowing for a couple hours. Finally, like, hour three, it starts letting up a little bit. And the the snow starts melting. It's crazy to see, too, because there's, like, this... There's this sort of foggy haze that's blowing through Big Willow. It almost looks like Silent Hill a little bit um, as the snow is burning off, which is pretty cool. I mean, it, again, these are conditions I've never seen before. Um, and by twelve, by noon, the track is pretty much cleared up. It's still wet and damp, and the conditions aren't the greatest, and it's still 30 degrees out there. But now it looks like we're going to be able to run. So after being stranded, you know, just kind of waiting around in the cold for three hours, at 12.05, I go out for session two. And the sun has melted all the snow off my car at this point. All I really hear is, like, water gushing out of every panel. Like, you can you can hear all the water melting and pouring out of every fender, including the, uh, the trailer, too. The trailer was pretty bad. Um, the track starts to look dry. We're ready to go. I'm excited to put a new PB down at this point. I'm like, oh, okay, these, these conditions might actually be nice. If I play it patient enough, I might get some heat in these tires and put a good lap down. Uh, again, the key word is patient enough. My tires would not heat up. And one of the big changes that, uh, that I made for Beamer Challenge this year, running in B5 class because I can't take enough weight out of the car, I took off the arrow to get some points back. So this is the first time in a high-speed track like Big Willow that I'm running the car without arrow. Now, I use very simple arrow. It's the LTW wing, and I have a three, uh, a three-inch spoiler in the front. Um, but it actually it, it, it made a difference that I felt. One, it made a difference in that I didn't have the drag from the LTW wing holding me back. Uh, in the back straight at Big Willow, I would probably hit 120, 121, 
towards the end of turn eight as I'm approaching nine. This time around, I was at 120, like turning into turn eight. Um, I felt it. I felt that the car was breathing better. It might have been the cold air as well. Um, but I think without the drag of that, the arrow that I was using, um, I was able to get up to speed faster, which took a little getting used to as well. Um, so I'm continuing to work up. I think uh, around lap four, I'm starting to feel like, okay, I might be in an area where uh, these tires are going to grip and we'll be good to go. That is until I get to turn eight on the fourth lap. I felt a good bump. It's very bumpy out there anyway, um, but I felt a good bump that made me a little nervous and had let off the gas a little too fast, and the rear end goes completely light. So now at 120, at 120 miles an hour, and I'll, I'll put this footage on, on YouTube and Instagram, at 120 miles an hour, I go sideways I, it snaps so fast that I didn't even have time, and my reaction time's already hurting from how cold it is. So I I counter steer, but it's like it's a sad effort. And so now I'm sideways, going from eight into nine. My front two tires dip in the dirt, but then I'm back on the track. Luckily, I had enough grip uh, to stop on the track. So now I move out of the track to look for a safe space to. Uh, get back on the track um, and I get back on and as I'm driving to the black flag station because I know this is this is exactly this is time two at this point and I have to go visit the man I can feel vibration in the steering wheel I can tell I've flat spotted my tires I did hold the brakes um, when I spun out to hopefully maintain control and slow down as much as possible but in, as a result, I flat spotted my tires. So now I've got this weird vibration um, in my steering. I went back out after the black flag, and it's just uh, it was just too bad. It was it was not confidence inducing. I had already spun out twice, <laughs> three times really. I spun out, was able to maintain it on track, and then I spun out once, went off track, had a black flag. That one spun out another time. This is the one. And so go back to the black flag station. The actual the guy the marshal or whatever you call him actually said he's like, look, man, this is uh I know what happens in these conditions, but it's your second time. It happens one more time. We're gonna have to have a talk with uh, with the organizers. I'm like, oh man, I get three. So this is kind of it at this point. Um, so I go back out. Uh, I'm not really feeling it now that I've got the vibrations in the car. I'm like, I'm just gonna step out. So I step out of the car. The best time I could muster up was a 140.5, um, which is, you know, five seconds, five and a half seconds off my personal best. Um, I don't know what the arrow accounts for. Honestly, I'd give the arrow maybe a second, a second and a half uh, difference. I definitely had, if I would have kept go going, I think I definitely would have had a 138 at minimum that I can tell. Uh, I had an optimal lap of 139 uh, based on the first four laps. And I think I got it on a 138. As I'm warming up into things and the tires are getting a little more heat in them. Um, but I just, I, at this point, it's just why risk it, right? Um, there aren't enough people here really to to get like sort of the the competitive bug to keep going. And then the car's already having issues. Might as well stop while I'm ahead. I've had enough fun. At this point, I've got a decent time. And I had first in class with the 140.5. And that's because I'm the only one that showed up for my class. All right. That's, I'm the only, to be honest, I'm the only one that showed up for my class. Um, but honest, and in most cases, and I think it's still an asterisk wing for sure. And it, But in most cases, I would say, you know, it doesn't really count. You know, why, you know, throw it away or whatever. I wouldn't say throw it away, but... You know, it doesn't really count or it counts less. But in this case, I did it in the snow. I think if you show up in California to run in the snow and you run, that's a victory in itself. Now, there's another reason why I'm more okay with it is that out of seven cars overall, shout out to the seven people that showed up to Big Willow as part of Beamer Challenge, I got third overall. So across all classes, 
I got third place. Shout out to John Wu who got first and Mark uh who got second. Um Yeah. Yeah, I think he got second. Um Yeah, maybe I should look it up. Let's see. I'm pretty sure he got second. How you doing, man? All right. And so um, because of that, I think I think it was a pretty good outing, at least for my first outing um, out in uh, Big Willow in the snow. My first outing with Beamer Challenge, which was awesome because um, despite the fact there were barely uh, any people there, um, the people that were there were very, very welcoming. Um, you know, between we pretty much spent the whole day together with John, uh, Wu, uh, Mark, for who actually it turns out he works for IBOC. Uh, I mean, we got to know each other for those you know three hours we had to sit in the cafeteria waiting for the next session to start. Um, but it was cool to be sitting in the table with the, uh, podium, the overall podium, uh, at snow day, big willow, which was awesome. Going home was much less of an ordeal, especially now that, you know, I'm going home with a trophy. Um, it was a lot of fun. And I think for the most part, it just rained the whole way. I was worried that they were going to close freeways. I heard they were closing freeways and I wouldn't be able to get home because I had a 6 a.m. flight to Florida the next day. Which made it even worse, man. What a drag that weekend was. Um, sort of the the the, uh, the come down from the adrenaline rush that I had almost the entire day um, was really felt on the plane on the way to Florida the next day. But that was an awesome event. Um, I've it's pretty much solidified that I'm gonna spend my time with Beamer Challenge this year. Um, I am working on the video to put out, so there will be a YouTube video that goes out. Um, with re really everything leading up to the day and every and everything that I could cover during the day because it was just me. Um, I even lost uh, camera footage because uh, it was so cold. My GoPros didn't want to stay on. They I would turn them on. They would record for 10, 12 seconds and then turn off, at least for the first session. The second session, I was able to keep them on uh, or at least keep one on. Um, so I'll be posting all that footage on YouTube in one video once I get around to it. But let's get into our last segment of this episode, Bending the Rules. Meyershank Racing has brought back Deflategate. So Meyershank Racing was caught messing with the tire data during their victory at the Rolex 24 in Daytona. According to the investigation, an official statement from the team, MSR engineer Ryan McCarthy configured offsets into the tire pressure data that is sent to IMSA. So what they did or what the engineer did is um, essentially created a, let's call it a box that goes in between the tire sensors and IMSA. And the actual measurements of the tire pressures from the wheels go into the box in the box, the offsets uh, reduce the number or increase the number depending on what they need. Um, and then those updated numbers are sent to IMSA. So IMSA is unaware that there is uh, sketchiness going on with these tire pressures. Um, and they're able to move on accordingly. And so this allowed the number 60 Acura to run below minimum tire pressures. Um, and IMSA didn't notice at all. Um, and how it works is, uh, that the lower pressure, um, allowed the uh, number 60 Acura car to actually heat up their tires faster with less air in the tire. It's actually going to have a bigger contact patch, more rubber on the ground, right? More friction is created and more heat is generated, right? More surface area, more heat. Um, and that's exactly what they were doing. And it was actually noticeable on track, um, that they were moving faster than the other cars. But it wasn't until a Honda Performance Development, HPD, who is essentially a partner with Meyer Shank Racing, that they use, they have Acura and Honda cars. Um, 
they actually analyzed the data after the race and noticed that the tire pressures weren't within the designated parameters. So they immediately went and told IMSA, and then IMSA conducted an investigation and found that these offsets have had been implemented by the MSR engineer Ryan McCarthy. Um, it, it's crazy because this is essentially it's like it's like the same team, right? It's like sort of the same team. It's I would I would I would probably equate it to maybe like Alf, maybe Red Bull tattling on AlphaTauri. Um, you know, or maybe Mercedes on Aston Martin, something like that, right? Where there is a bit of a partnership, and, you know, they share engines. Um, and so it's surprising, uh, but, you know, a hundred performance development wanted to do the right thing. They want to do the ethical thing. They want to win the right way. They even issue a statement, you know, saying that they're extremely disappointed in the misconduct of the MSR team and they don't condone it. Um, they were, they, they wanted to get, as away from this as they could as possible. Um, and there were consequences upon the conclusion of the investigation. So the IMSA comes out and finds uh, Meyer Shank Racing MSR $50,000 and they lose all their Daytona race winnings. Uh, they took a 200-point deduction in the GTP Championship, which moved them to last place. They dropped all MEC points. Mike Shank was banned from IMSA, IMSA races until June which isn't really that long from now. I, I'm not, I think you might mi miss a couple races. I don't know that it, I don't know that it was significant enough. Maybe it's possible he wasn't aware. I haven't seen any details around what his involvement was. Uh, but I think as, you know, the head, he uh, faces some consequence here. But the biggest one is engineer Ryan McCarthy, who was directly implicated in these offsets um, is now suspended indefinitely. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I get confused by suspended indefinitely, right? Because indefinitely means that there is no time frame for his return. But that could mean that it just hasn't been set yet. I think in this case, it means it hasn't been set because he's never allowed to come back. But then I feel if he was permanently banned, they might say permanently banned. So maybe this does mean like there's a chance that he can come back. Um but that's a that's a lofty punishment. And I stated MSR drops to last place now in the GTP, GTP standings, but they do retain the victory which I thought was odd. I would have expected the victory to get wiped out. Um I guess technically they did race the win, but with a very very distinct advantage, I would say. And, I mean, it doesn't matter how much of an advantage it was. I think if it's against the rules, it's against the rules. But then maybe there isn't, I guess you could argue that there isn't anything in the rules that says you can't use offsets. No, there has to be something in the rules that says you're not allowed to manipulate data. I, I, I haven't looked at the rules. Now I'm going to go look at the rules. But there has to be something on there that says you can't manipulate data. I doubt there wouldn't be at this day and age, in which case this would be covered. But man, Meyer Shanks to Flategate. Like this is probably the most blatant case cheating we've had in a really long time. This does rival the only reason this rivals the Williams F1 esports cheating is because this is in real life. But the Williams F1 cheating is pretty, pretty obvious. And they even actually, uh, they recently, I think it was this morning, um, one of their drivers, I forget his name, um, but one of the Williams F1 eSports drivers was cycling through his tabs and in one case opened on screen um, a folder containing cheats for the game. Now, since then, he's come out and said that... Um, all he's doing is testing these cheats to help reverse engineer uh, with some developers. But, and a lot of other people uh, share this sentiment with me, when you're dealing with uh, manipulating code, right? Like cheats. So that's, what, that's what these things are doing, manipulating code. You don't necessarily need someone to drive to understand 
the behavior of it or to reverse engineer it or to find a patch for it. You can do you you're better off engaging a uh, like a security expert, not more so than an esports driver. So yeah, I'm making some I'm I'm making some deductions here, like I'm some sort of detective. But it is I am a little skeptical that you know what he is saying is the reason for this is true. I don't think they would use drivers um and testing out cheat codes. Um and then this folder was I mean it had a lot of stuff in it. And I mean it's hilarious to me that it's labeled cheats. Um but I'll post this as well. I mean it, it's it's pretty wild. Anyway, so Williams Esports, it's a shit show for cheating. Um and that's the most recent thing and they actually cheated in Daytona as well. So this is the second cheater to come out of Daytona, but at least this was in real life. And Honda it wants doesn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They want to get away from it as much as possible, and I completely, completely understand. Um, you know, that said, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how, how they thought they couldn't get caught. I mean, I guess it's it's it might be unlikely that they ever get caught if, uh, if Honda doesn't, you know, provide that data to IMSA. There would really be no other way for them to knowing that because the offsets are taken care of outside of any IMSA system. So whatever numbers they're receiving, they're they're receiving. There could be other teams doing this. Um, I imagine you know they have a lot of uh, data scientists at the very least, or uh, coders, developers uh, on the staff. There could be other teams that are doing this as well. It's possible that it's not just them, and they're the ones that got caught. We're doing a lot of speculating here. Uh, the point is, man, bending the rules is back again, back to back, because someone got caught cheating again. And again, like uh, Petty once said, right, if you ain't cheating a little, you ain't going to win much. And that is our episode. You can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. I'll leave you with, I'll leave you with these last words. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're working on, whatever you're generating for the car world, stop thinking about it and go do it. It doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to get started. That's what I'm doing. All right. Good night.